check. So it was not on the screen, but importantly, the Vacation Bible School meeting is after church over in Big City Studio. So if you are working at Vacation Bible School, uh, volunteering, whatever you're doing, by the way, we probably, they could probably find a job for you if you haven't signed up yet to volunteer, but if you're, that will be right there next door in Big City Studio starting right after church and as well with your time. So if you're doing that, that make sure that you go over to that. This is uh, one of our elders, Rob Thompson, who also, sh- I mean, R- Rob Thompson. <laughs> Bless. Rob Elkins. Uh, by the way, that's Rob with two B's, so uh, Rob's going to pray for me before we start. Yes, sir. Father God, we thank you for this man. I thank you for bringing him back to us this week. Uh, I pray that your spirit would just come upon him right now, that you would fill him with your words, clear our minds and our hearts to, to receive that today and to hear what you need us to hear, that we could better serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, sir. So turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, we're going to be dealing with now specific questions that the church has written to Paul, and Paul is going to answer them. And so he begins to answer them. Of course, last week he was talking about being married. I mean, last week, in, if you were in chapter 7, of course, the Bible was before that, but you see he's talking about marriage, and now he's going to be talking about food that's been sacrificed to idols. And Bob kind of set you up, which is kind of a premise for that. But here, starting with verse 1, let's read together. Now let's talk about food that has been sacrificed to idols. You think that everyone should agree with your perfect knowledge. And while knowledge may make us feel important, it is love that really builds up the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one God knows and cares for. So now what about it? Should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god, and that there is only one God and no other. According to some people, there are many so-called gods and many lords, both in heaven and on earth. But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything. And don't miss this. Created everything. We exist for him, and there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything, and through whom we have been given life. However, not all Christians realize this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't miss out on anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful with this freedom of yours. Do not cause a brother or sister with a weaker conscience to stumble. You see, this is what can happen. We Christians who think that it is wrong to eat this food will see you eating in the temple of an idol. You know there's nothing wrong with it, but they will be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been dedicated to the idol. So because of your superior knowledge, a weak Christian for whom Christ has died will be destroyed. And you are sinning against Christ when you sin against other Christians by encouraging them to do something that they believe is wrong. If what I eat is going to make another Christian sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to make another Christian stumble. And I'll give, I'll give Hootie a chance to pull it up if he's able to. But this past, uh, thank you guys so much for letting uh, Danielle and I and, and Molly and Hannah go on, on a vacation this past, uh, past week, I guess. We got back Monday a week ago, and uh, we hiked something called Angel's Landing. Now, Angel's Landing is there in Zion. I just want to put this up there so you can see what I'm talking about. This is not me, but this is what it's like. 
Angel's Landing is a hike where many parts of it are only as wide as this podium right here. And on one side of the hike, there is a 1,200-foot drop. On the other side of it, there is an 800-foot drop. And so everyone told us we should do it. And by everyone, I mean the internet. And so... We get there, and you know, people talking about, oh, you know, these hikes out there, they're so hard. And we're like, Grandfather Mountain, bro, don't talk to me about hard. We, you know, Mount Mitchell, the gorge, whatever. So we get there, and you know, there's some portly people going up, so we're like, we got this. Um, get to this one part, and, and then there is just this zigzag, 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 zigzag of just straight up this cliffside. And then you get to the part where you get to the place where there is nothing but chains for you to hold on as you walk across a sliver of land that is 1,200 feet off the ground on one side and 800 feet off the ground on the other side until you get to the end of it. I lost my daggum mind on this trail. (laughs) If I had been there by myself, I would have been okay. If I'd have been there by myself, I would have been fine. But putting me up there with my wife and both of my children, dads, you know, you go from being fun dad to being overprotective psycho. Now, women, let me tell you something about yourselves real quick. You cannot hike without taking a selfie every five seconds, maybe six. And women, when you hike, for some reason, there's a lot of singing and kind of like this while you're hiking and maybe some like, you know, dancing maneuvers. And and then you guys like to like smack each other on the butt and laugh and that junk will get you killed up there. So I lost my mind. And I'm yelling at my family, put your phone, as Danielle, she's like, I never want to do that hike with him again. By myself, fine, but whatever, you know. I lose my mind, and I'm sure they had no, Danielle's like, once we were done and we were back down, she was like, was that good? I was like, no, it was not good. You know, and my whole thing was keep my family alive, keep them alive. And when you get there, there's a little sign when you get to this part where where the chains are, and it says, use extreme caution. It doesn't say, hike like a dad. But I, in this situation, was the weak one. I was weak. And in my weakness, I demanded that everyone adhere to what made me feel better. And those who were stronger than me, which is my wife and my two daughters... They were like, for the unity of our family, which by the way, it's unity or death. They were like, for the unity of our family, we will acquiesce to the weaker one so that there can be unity and there will actually be life. Well, golly, you can't even have a better picture of what Paul is calling the Corinthian church so that there will be unity, so that there will be love that would lead to life. Now, quick fact about this, the National Park Service says that five people over the time have died on this hike. Fake news. If you go and look at the local news, one person has died about every other month there. So, brought him back alive. But anyway, thank you, Hootie. What we're having in this text is Paul begins to talk to them, and he begins to talk to them about love, knowledge, and Christian freedom. Love, knowledge, and Christian freedom. And I'm going to say this a couple of times. This isn't a, these aren't verses about knowledge versus love. This isn't a verse about this isn't a verse about there's only love and nothing else because if there's only love, then everything's okay. We are, there's, there's, these are people that are interested in truth, that are interested in knowledge, that are interested in wisdom. 
But what do you do with that when it comes to your Christian freedom? And so they're answering, Paul is answering for them a specific question that they have asked him. And they've asked him this question, what about meat that has been sacrificed to idols? So let me set that up for you. If you were in the town of Corinth or the city of Corinth back 2,000 years ago, idolatry would have been everywhere. Idolatry is everywhere, both publicly and privately. In the public sector, there would be temples to different gods, and there would be three ways that that meat was offered. There would be a portion of a cow or a bull or whatever animal it was that would be killed, that the portion as it's killed, then that part of the meat would be burned to a crisp, sacrificed to the gods or the goddesses. Then there was a portion that was then offered to the priests as kind of their payment. And then there's a portion that they didn't use, and guess what? There was a secondary meat market there in the temple where they sold that meat. Guess which meat was the cheapest to meat to buy? That one. You know, that, that part of it. Now, there was another meat market that the people just took the animals, brought them right there, slaughtered it, didn't do anything to it but other than sold it, and that meat was more expensive. Now, remember, you don't have freezers and walk-ins and refrigerators. You had to go to the market to get this meat. So we're talking about a practical thing. Privately, it was the same way. In private, you might go over to someone's house, and you went over to their house, they would have a little shrine to their gods or goddesses. They might have a little sanctuary area even in their house. And then they would take the food that they were having, and they would dedicate it to that god or groups of god and goddesses and pray that name over it and bless it and maybe even offer a private sacrifice to their house. So publicly or privately, unless you were Christians, you couldn't get away from it. And so these people had come out of that lifestyle and are now coming into the church. And they're, and they're kind of like going, wait a minute, you're telling me that there's no such things as other gods and goddesses and there's only one God? I, I hear you, but I, I can't get over that. And but you would eat the meat that was sacrificed? What in the world? And so you can see there's this tension between maybe Jewish Christians or maybe Christians that had, had greater knowledge and these new Christians. These new Christians. And he's not referring to them as weak in a, in a derogatory way, but he's referring to them just in this, this immature, this haven't grown up enough. And so... In this, which is a much foreign to us climate, they also had a, a fear of the ubiquity of demons. The demons were just everywhere. And so then they would even just go, well, maybe there was, maybe this, since it's not, there's a demon that's actually, that, that whole thing that was offered to a god was actually a demon, and now there's a demon in the meat, and Paul's like, hang on, let's, all right, so let's address this. And so let's start with the text, and we're going to start, we're going to go verses a few at a time. So I'm going to go one through three, four through six, seven through nine, and ten through thirteen. And so in the first, first verse right here, if you follow along with me in your Bible, Paul says, listen, all right, let me answer this specific question. I'm going to answer this specific question. But first, let's talk about the truth that knowledge is subject first to love. Knowledge is subject to love. And so you would hear this later on in 1 Corinthians 13. What if I know everything? What if I'm able to prophesy everything? What if I know all the mysteries, but I have not love? It's useless. And so he's going to say to us, listen, it's great for you to have knowledge. There's nothing wrong with having knowledge. It's got to be subject to love, and you've got to use your knowledge in a loving way. So in verse 2, he kind of then picks up on that, and he says, listen, I want to tell you something about the people that are wise. The people that are wise know that they don't know it all. The people that are not wise think they know it all. What's worse, to know that you're blind when you're really blind, and to live that way, and to ask for help, and to be cautious, or to be blind and not know it, and go hike Angel's Landing, right? It's better to go, you know what? I know that there's a lot out there that I don't know. And so that's what he says. He says, now listen, let's talk about wisdom. And then verse three, he says this part. Now remember, 
It's not about what you know about God. It's about do you have a relationship with God? For you can have all the knowledge in the world about God and not have a relationship with him. And you and I both know this from, you know, here we're at the end of the year where you're getting your yearbook, right, students? And you know this, parents and teachers and grandparents. You did not know that person at all, but they were cute. And you took out your highlighter out of your trapper keeper and you highlighted around their picture so that you could turn back to it. And you knew that they sang in the glee club or on like the Spanish club. And this, you knew all about them, but you had no relationship with them and you weren't known by them because you did not love them. You didn't have a relationship with them. And so that's what he says. It's not all about knowing God and having, I mean, not all about having knowledge of God. It's about knowing him in a loving way so that he knows you. So in verses four, five, and six, Notice that in verses 4, 5, and 6, the premise of this is he's saying, listen, no one is debating, no one here is debating that an idol is really a god. We're not debating that. Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, perfectly clear. What are, what are idols? They are nothing, and those that worship them become dumb just like them. And if you thought that was harsh, go read Isaiah 44, where he says, listen, a craftsman will take some wood, and he'll take part of it, and he'll cut it up, and he'll cook his food over it. He'll take another part of it and cut it up and, you know, make some kind of thing that he's going to sell for something to someone, and then he's going to take another part of it and cut it up and make an idol and bow down and worship it. How dumb is that, is what Isaiah says. So they're not debating whether whether an idol is really a real God. And even in verse 5, then he says, listen, let's acknowledge that there are pagan ideas out there in pagan ways. We'll just acknowledge that some people think that way. We don't, but let's acknowledge that that's a way that people think. And then we get to verse 6. And verse 6, you want, you want to circle this and you want to come back to it because this is not just a verse for the Corinthians. This is a verse for the Corinthians. It's a verse for Christians because this is the crux of the text is verse 6. There is one God and one Father. And what does it say in the text? We exist for him. We exist for God the Father. But then he continues and comes along, and he says this, and there is one Lord, but then he switches it up, and he says, through that Lord, through Jesus, we are able to exist through the Father. That's the, that is the gospel right there. And uh, encapsulates, just this verse, encapsulates the difference between idolatry and the gospel. In idolatry, there is an idol, and you exist for that idol, and in order to please that idol, you are the one that's on the hook. Whatever you do, you think, in a sense, props that idol up and gives it power, whatever you do. But in verse 6 is the gospel. You exist for God. You cannot please him on your, on your own. So we live through Christ, who is our Lord, so that we might exist for the Father. We live through him. The power that we have for living comes not from us, but comes from the Lord. So that's an important part. Then we get to verses 7, 8, and 9. And verse 7 begins with this whole idea of deferring, deferring in, in a loving way to the weaker Christians. Now, Warren Wiersbe, when he talks about this, he describes the weaker Christians, and he describes them in three different ways. He says they're, they're weak in conscience. And the reason that they're weak in conscience is for several reasons. One, they may have only been saved for a short amount of time. They've only been saved for a short amount of time. The second thing is, They have been saved, but they've refused to go deep. They refuse to study. They don't want to study. We know people like this. They are saved, but they don't really care about going any deeper. So when you bring something up to them, they don't understand it. They don't, they don't, what are you talking about? Or they manipulate other people that don't know other of these things, and they 
force things on them because they're weak as well. They've refused to go deep. And the third person is a Christian that knows that they have freedom, but they're afraid to use their freedom. They're afraid of their freedom. They're afraid they need these big guardrails in their life, and they're afraid of the things that we have Christian freedom to do. And so notice right here in verses 7, 8, and 9, and so in verses 8 and 9, notice that he talks to the strong Christians. He never in verses 8 and 9 says, you weaker Christians, you need to buck up and get with the program. That is why he is the Apostle Paul and I am not. Because I would have been like, listen, weak Christians, Pokemon Go is all right. I wouldn't have said that. But anyway, he says, you weaker Christians, you must defer to them. And he never says to the weak, to the strong, to, he says, you, you stronger Christians, you must defer to the weaker. He never says to the weaker, you better buck up, guys. You gotta get with the program. And so he says to them instead, do it in love. Do it in love. And, and this is one, again, is the gospel. The gospel isn't about what we eat. The gospel, what we eat doesn't save us. So in your freedom to eat whatever you want, choose to love these weaker Christians. And then verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. He says this again. He's basically saying this in verse 10. He says, defer to weaker Christians not to pamper them. We're not trying to pamper them. We don't want to just leave them there, but to help them mature. And we're going to talk about this. And he says, you have knowledge, and that knowledge is correct, and we're not going to debate that. But you must remember that because of the knowledge that you have, you have a ministry. Have you ever thought about that? You have knowledge not just to have it. You have knowledge so that you have a ministry. Your knowledge is then a ministry. That's why anybody teaches anything, because you have knowledge that you want to give to someone, and the best teachers are not the ones that say, sit down, shut up, you know, like, I'm going to tell you this, and they're the ones that say, I know this, you don't know it, and I want desperately for you to know it, and I want you to be able to come so that we can relate even on deeper levels. And so he says, you have this knowledge because you have a ministry to these weaker Christians. Don't look down on them. And notice that Paul, when he uses these So if you go to verses 12 and and 13, he says this. He says, listen, if you encourage them, that's the verb, or verse 10, it says, what if they see you? What is is absent in either of those places? If they see you eating in a temple of an idol or you encourage them to eat the meat, what's, what's absent from that? What's absent is an explanation. There's no explanation, there's no communication, and there's no love. They just see what you do without an explanation, or you encourage them to do what's wrong. By the way, encouraging them to do what is wrong is what happens in verses 10 and 12, but also Jesus comes back and he chastises the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira in Revelations 2.14 and Revelation 2.20, and he says to the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira, I have this against you. You outright encourage people to eat at the temples of idols and eat the meat that's sacrificed there. Now, there's a huge difference between being, ah, come on and do it, suck it up. Come on, you know in Christ we're free to do this, than having a conversation where there is ministry going on. He says, there is no ministry here than what you're doing. So I want you to have ministry because ministry invests in love, time, words, deeds, and it makes you accessible to other people in love, and it's done through love. So let's first, Danielle and I have been talking about this, and it's something that actually Jeannie Elkins um, and Danielle and I have kind of been talking about as well through some things that we've been listening to about relating to non-Christians. But one of the first things that we need to understand when we teach a text like this, we need to come to the why part of it. The why. And just go, why? What? Why? Why is this even here? Why? 
Why do we even need to worry about why here in 2019 where we don't have this issue, why? Why is this relevant? Okay, so why? Why would Paul not say to the weak people, you need to buck up? You know that there's no other gods but one God. You know that this whole idol thing is made up. Look at Isaiah 44. Look at Psalm 115. Look at Psalm 135. Come on, get with the program. Why does he do what we think of as coddling? Coddling is the thing that we hate the most, right? Oh, you're asking me to coddle that person. They need to be, they need to be just shaken up and figure out what they're I'm not going to coddle them. It, this just seems like coddling, doesn't it? But it's not. The reason that Paul says this is that because Paul doesn't want divisions in the church over peripheral issues. Paul does not want divisions in the church over peripheral issues. Rather, Paul wants unity because of the truth that we have in the love of Christ or the love that we find in the truth of Christ. Now listen, if we as a church or if any church began to teach to you there are more than one ways to God the Father other than Jesus Christ. That church needs to split. We can split over things that are the absolute truth. Do you know where the absolute truth things tend to be is a good handy thing? This church I know is preaching through the Apostles' Creed, but we're pausing right now to go through 1 Corinthians. I don't know why, we're just doing it anyway. Um, But a handy dandy list of the things that are the things that we ought to split up as a church about are the things in the Apostles' Creed. Let's go through them. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian, or the Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the life ever after, the resurrection of the body, and the life ever after. Amen. We ought to split up if we have disagreements in the church about that. Because that is the capital T truth. But that's not what churches split up over, is it? Typically not. John, this carpet is obviously gray. Well, we ordered green. I know. We're out. I thought we were going to get a hymnal supplement with a blue cover. Well, we got red. Well, we're out. What do... Typically, there's disunity over peripheral issues. And something, you know, I'm, I'm making light of them, but sometimes the peripheral issues are this. We're an NIV only church. We're a KJV only church. We're an NASB only church. Well, I've got the NIV. Get out of here! St. Luke's is next door. <laughs> Paul wants there to be unity. And not divisions because of a peripheral issue. So he's not saying the issue of whether you're doing this is not nearly as important as the lordship of Christ. Notice that verse 6 says this. There is but one God, the Father, for whom we exist. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we exist and through whom we were created. Notice what the text doesn't say. You were created to enjoy all of your freedoms in Christ. Is it true that we have freedoms in Christ? Absolutely. Would Paul say that one of the freedoms that the Corinthian church has in Christ was to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Absolutely. What does he say? For what is an idol anyway? It's nothing. We know that there's only one God. But some people don't believe that. That's the big 
the big pause in there. But some people don't believe that. And so verses six is, verse 6 is, here's what we for sure know. Let's be united under that. And I want to say one more time, this in this context is not knowledge versus love, nor is it celebrating ignorance. It's neither of that. Notice he never says knowledge is not important. Notice he never says stop pursuing knowledge. Continue to do that. And there's no discussion here either about should we worship idols. That's not even part of the discussion. That all is biblically clear. And there are so many things in the Bible that are absolutely biblically clear. Biblically clear. But whether they eat meat that is sacrificed to an idol is a secondary issue. It is a peripheral issue. And he says, listen, your church is going to be weaker if you split up over secondary issues. Instead, those of you that are strong, lay down that freedom that you have so that you not cause another brother or sister to stumble in their faith to maintain the unity within the church. He calls upon the stronger members of the church to minister. Now that's a foreign topic here in 2019 because you know who the minister of a church is? And you know what you expect me to do in the church? Let's be honest, everything. Y'all, the security guard called me last year. There's a copperhead, it's 9.30 at night. There's a copperhead here at church. In my mind, do you have a gun? <laughs> and I said, yes. He's like, I'm just letting you know in case you want to do something about it. What do you want me to do? Well, I'm just letting you know in case you, hold on. I'm just letting you know in case you want to do something about it. I said, I'm putting my seven iron in the back of the car. I'll see you there in 15 minutes. Truthfully, we go, we got a pastor. That's what we pay you for. We pay you because we don't want to deal with that. That's not what Paul says. We as stronger believers have ministry in our church. We have ministry in our church. And so when we look at what this verse 6 that frames everything, he says, listen, you exist for the Father. You don't exist for your freedoms. And you exist through Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, if you exist through Jesus Christ, well, let's examine what Jesus Christ did. In Philippians 2.6, verbatim says, he who was God did not demand to and cling to his rights, and we would add freedoms or privileges as God, but instead laid them down. And so if we exist through Jesus, we might want to follow Jesus' example. And so let's talk about Jesus as the ultimate example and how we lay down our freedoms for the sake of unity. Christ is the ultimate example because he put himself under all the same laws of every Jewish kid in the nation at that time. Think about this. Mary and Joseph went to the temple to offer a sacrifice for their son, to dedicate the Son of God to God. Seriously, that's like taking a Coke can back to the bottler and be like, I think this is yours. And the bottler's like, have you hit your head? But that's what he did. And then he what? He's circumcised. And then he goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist. And then he follows all the purity laws. And he worshiped at the temple on the day that they called him to. And he put himself under all of those. Why? To minister to those who were weaker. And everyone who that applies to, raise your hand. 
And the text very clearly says we exist for God the Father and we are able to live for God the Father through our Lord. That means he's in charge of us, Christ. What does this look like practically? I'm not going to tell you what it looks like practically. I'm going to tell you what it looks like in the Lord of the Rings. There's a part in uh, the first book of Lord of the Rings called The Fellowship of the Ring where I'm going to tell you real quickly and then we're going to go, we're going to go 11.5 in the dork meter here. Um, the, elves and, the elves and the dwarves don't get along. I know you didn't know this. It's also in Second Psalms. But anyway, the elves and the dwarves don't get along and so the elves are going to take this entire company which is made up of hobbits, people, elves, elf and a dwarf and they're going to take these people into the sacred realm of the elves and they're like, we can't take you there with this dwarf. Finally, they say, we'll take you there, but the dwarf has to be blindfolded. And then Aragorn, who's the stud, says this. Well, if we're, if we're going to blindfold him, blindfold us all so that we will all be put in the same position so that there will be unity among us and we can get where we need to go. And that's often what this looks like practically in a church. We freely lay down our freedoms for those who are newer Christians, those that haven't learned enough yet, or those that see Christian freedom and they're afraid of it. So let me finish this up and I'm gonna tell you what this looks like practically now. Now I said this before, it's not love versus knowledge, nor is it a celebration of ignorance, but rather is a commitment to loving construction. Have you ever seen something that's been constructed and something that's been lovingly constructed? Halloween is the time for this. Halloween's the time for this. Because you know what? There are some that they go out and you can tell they just went to Walmart, pulled that thing off, put it on, and then their parents were like, I ain't got time for you. You made D's in this. Get out the door, get some candy. Go ahead. Then there's some that you can tell they got home from school and their mom was like, oh, hold on. We're going to make this. Now stand, listen. I'm going to pin this to you. And they come and then all of a sudden Chewbacca shows up on your doorstep and you're not sure if he's from the movie or like this is a kid. And his costume was lovingly constructed. Well, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to lovingly construct because verse 1 very much says this right away. He says, you may think that it's all about knowledge, but it is love that builds the church. So this is all about loving construction. So how can we practically love one another in the church in this area? The first thing we have to do is admit that there's some areas where we are weak and there's some areas where we're strong as believers. And we're mediocre at best at this. I'm going to tell you how I know this. Years ago, over 10 years ago, the men decided in the church we were going to go play golf down at Catawba Country Club. We're going to go play golf down there. They asked me, do you play golf? My response was, my dad played at Duke. I didn't have anything to do with me, but that was my response. Now, it's not like, you know, like a Jedi, like I have the same powers that he has just because, you know, he, you know, I just, you know, all of a sudden, like I pop out like Tiger Woods and I'm like, you know, it's not that way. And so they were like, oh, you're going to be in my, fo- no, you're going to be in my foursome. No, you're going to be in my foursome. They did not know what they were getting into. I got the ball stuck in a tree. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. It's this knobby, gnarly pine tree right there. And I literally went, bam, and it hits the tree. And they're like, oh, it's going to come down here in a minute. I thought you said your dad played at Duke. He did. I did not. And so we're, we're not great at admitting sometimes that we're weak in an area. We just come busting right up and, hey, 
We're not great at admitting we're weak, and sometimes when we're strong, we don't want to admit it because then we don't want to minister to people. So I'm going to give you some practical things, and some of y'all are probably going to email me about this later on and say, how dare you say that? Sorry. You pay me to be the pastor. You don't want to come up here and teach. I'll do it. Okay. So again, let's talk about weak Christians. Weak Christians in this context, they're new Christians. They're new Christians. They're people that have just come out of the bar lifestyle. They're people that have just come out of the club lifestyle, the party lifestyle, the lifestyle of, of idolatry. They're people that don't want to learn. They're people that haven't truly studied. They're people that are afraid of their freedom. They may be people that grew up in a very, very legalistic home where somehow you made yourself right with God by having a ton of different rules, and they all had to do with Christian freedoms that we have. That's me, no long hair, no earrings. We don't drink, we don't chew, we don't go with girls that do. Um, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> the Baptist, y'all, all right. That's, that, that, that's, that's not a funny saying. They say they teach that. But I want to give you some areas where you are going to be, need to be willing to lay down your freedom. And here's the first one. Whew, here we go. If you're strong in body. If you're strong in body. So we're talking about strong versus weak. If you're strong in body, and I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, but if God has blessed you and gifted you, if God has blessed you and gifted you, one of the things that you need to do is you need to be aware that you are strong in body, and you may need to consider more modesty. If you're strong in body, just think about it. Dad, sometimes we have to tell our daughters, you're stronger in body than you think. Go put something else on. But are you strong in body? Are you willing to put aside the Christian freedom that you have to wear what you think looks amazing, could be guy or girl, so that you will not cause another believer to stumble? Okay, let's go on. That you're strong in constitution. Let's talk about alcohol. Let's talk about alcohol. Some people have come out of the place where they knelt down and worshiped at the idol of alcohol. And it literally had their hand, the alcohol had its hands around their throat and it was choking them. And that person's out. And they have equated that with everything pagan. And they see you, and they don't know whether how much you, you've had to drink, and they see you, and you've got all this in front of you, and, and you're, hey, we're freeing Christ to drink. No one's debating that you're freeing Christ to drink. Let's all agree with that. First miracle that Jesus does is turn water into wine. But you want to be careful. You want to be careful. And in certain circumstances, you want to say, I know that I'm free to, but I also know that these folks are here, and I've never had a conversation with them about this. I don't know where they stand. I don't know what they think. I don't know where their background is. I also know that they might be a new Christian. I'm willing to put that freedom aside so I won't cause them to stumble. Let's keep going. What if you're strong in theology? Hold on. Theology is good. The study of theology is good. It is not the gospel. And so I'm going to tell you how this. What if you're strong in theology? What if all of a sudden you begin to have a relationship with a younger believer, someone that is brand new, and you begin to go, so are you part of the elect? Some of y'all are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So you're part of the elect, so you, you know that you're predestined. What? I thought that the preacher asked if anyone wanted to be a believer, and I was convicted of my sin, and I walked the aisle and professed Jesus was uh, my Savior, and I believe that he's raised from the dead, and, and now because of what he's done, I'm saved. And you go, yeah, yeah, that's good, but we who are on the inside believe in the election and predestination. And they go, well, I don't know if I'm elect and predestined. I didn't even get elected to, like, you know, student council in the eighth grade. <laughs> we laugh. But when you put the knowledge of your theology over the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, I have had conversations with people that have said, I 
was so confident in the Lord, and then I heard again and again and again, are you part of the elect? Are you? And we can have that conversation, and you and I can sit down and solve that whole issue and to push 2,000 years of Christian history aside, and we'll, we'll take care of it in the afternoon. But you can also put someone down and go, you don't, you don't have the level of intellect that I do. I know that I'm part of the elect, and someone's going, I don't know. What if you're strong in loyalty? What I'm talking about is politics. I'm talking about politics. Funny, funny story was at David Hammer's dad's funeral yesterday, and uh, the pastor stood right up and said, now, I was a Democrat, and David Hammer's dad said, hey, can you come help me put this sign up? And he said, sure, I'll help you, and the sign was face down in the bed of the truck. This was in the year 2000, and he said, you know I'm a Democrat, right? He said, yeah, come on. And so they go out, and they go out to the corner of Highway 16 and 64 there in, uh, in Taylorsville, and they flip up the sign, and it says, Bush 2000. And he's like, you know, I'm a Democrat. And Dave's dad said, I thought this would do you some good. (laughs) But let's be honest. Some of us shout so loud about our political convictions that we've drowned out our ability to say much about Jesus. We shout so much about that. And Jesus is so much farther important. And I know that you're going to go, but it's all woven together. And y'all, I'm as pro-life as it gets. But if you shout about this political issue so much that you mortgage your ability to be able to share the simple truth that we are dead in our sins apart from faith in Jesus Christ, then we have taken something that is a strong loyalty that we have and we have used it to bash other people. When I was learning how to do this sport called wake skating, there's a few friends of mine that they told me how to do it And then they asked me to jump off the boat into the water behind it. And then one of them got in the water with me. And then we sat there together in the water and we floated and they talked and they're burning gas right there in the the motor and it's going, but they didn't care. And they're sitting there and they told me to do this and hold this position and do this. And and I was like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. And then, you know, we went up and I did the whole, like, you know, mouthful of water. And then... They stayed in the water, and they came back to me. And they were like, all right, now do this. Now, what you didn't do was you didn't do this. Now, keep your head down, do this. Put your feet right here, and I'm going to stand with you. And this time, I'm going to hold you so that when it happens, you're going to be able to do this. Face water again. They didn't leave me. They didn't go, well, we told you. They stayed, and they stayed with me, and they ministered to me. Did they know how to do it? Absolutely. And they took what they knew and came to the weaker guy and took what they knew, and in love and building construction, they built me up. And they laid down their freedom. They could have been out on the lake doing all kind of things, jumping over ducks. I don't even know what they do, all this kind of stuff. They could have been doing that and just been like, whatever. You'll figure it out. Watch us. But they didn't. They ministered to me. They ministered to me. And that's what Christ is calling us to do sometimes. He's saying, listen, I know you're free to do this. Will you, for my sake, because I did it for you, lay it down so there wouldn't be divisions in our church over peripheral issues and that we would make the main thing the main thing, which is Jesus is Lord, period.